A world now rift with vibrant hues. Replace the handheld well past its dues, giving the players all sorts of views where the screen was once duller. Sharing the platform, it shall rise, and hold it dearly, I'd advise. Look no further for your prize. I present the Game, the Game Boy, Boy Color. Color. Let's try this again. Now concentrate. Think Pichu, Lugia, Pikachu. Chikorita, Cinderpill. Cool. The new collector's edition gold and silver Pokemon Game Boy Color. A true Pokemon master may do anything to get it. Oh, how about five more for my friends? The Game Boy Color. The chief of handhelds in the late 90s is very important to me, personally, because it was the first video game console I owned, and after I cleaned the entire house for a $5 reward from my mother. With that crisp Lincoln bill in my hand, I went rum and sailing with my grandmother and chanced across one of the luckiest moments of my life. A limited edition, Pokemon-themed Game Boy Color that was listed for exactly $5. This single purchase changed the entirety of my life as I began to explore my own venture into handheld gaming. Going ankle deep in Pokemon and Kirby, Dragon Warrior 1 and 2, even The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. As several years got put into this treasured toy of mine, surviving the usual 8 year old care and batteries burning through it like currency, it came to a crashing halt. My father, in a fit of rage, slammed it into concrete and obliterated the system into chunks of plastic and electronics, ending my time with the handheld world briefly. Talk about one way to cement a childhood memory, am I right, guys? Uh, here in this episode, though, we'll be exploring your memories and shattering our own misconceptions with the Game Boy Color's history, design, accessories, advertising, and more. Where many companies like Sega, Atari, Bandai, Tiger, Neo Geo, and many more struggled to find purchase, Nintendo had succeeded in clearing their path in the gaming industry with the color as one of their many foundations. But what if I told you that they weren't even going to make the color until gaming developers began to bring demand for it? What if they were planning a decade-long gap where the old Game Boy and the Game Boy Pocket were meant to make a stand instead? Why did the Game Boy Color succeed when many other handhelds had better hardware, and even commercial marketing support? We'll be finding out today why the world embraced a splash of color with Episode 1 of the Arcade Report. Much like the original release of the Game Boy and its lighter cousin, the Game Boy Pocket, many people are well-versed with the color's life-changing design. It came to the U.S. on November 18, 1998, just one month after its initial release in Japan. Entering the shelves of retail stores at a modest $69, which is around the equivalent of $120 today, parents found themselves the perfect little holiday gift for children as the holidays began to near. With the Nintendo 64 having been out for almost two years at this point, and the original Game Boy just reaching its ninth birthday, children and consumers alike applauded the unique remodel and complete overhaul. 
allowing color to fill the screen where Hughes and Green once stood, which uh, got <laughs> a lot of ire and mocking from over Saga, I'd like to point out. This looked like the next generation of handheld gaming, with little worthy competition coming from the Sega Nomad or Tiger's Game.com handhelds. Like, seriously, have, have you guys heard of those last two? Maybe I should have done my report on those old relics. Even the Sega Game Gear was just as antiquated as the original Game Boy, hitting shells in North America in 1991 and discontinued in 1997. I would say the Atari Lynx would have been the prize fighter, but that's not a discussion for a couple more episodes. Japan may have also housed potential rivals of their own, such as SNK's Neo Geo Pocket and Bandai's Wonderswan, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But even there, they failed to keep up with the explosive sale of Nintendo's Golden Age product. Nintendo, however, already had chefs in the kitchen for a completely different design called Project Atlantis. An inch by two inch color LCD screen, 32 bit processor, it had all the works to be the successor. It was never meant to be, however, as this piece of gaming architecture would never make it past the manufacturing stage. With the expensive costs, a heavy weight, and a poor performance for his chipset, Project Atlantis just wasn't the hit that the company, ran by Hiroshi Yamauchi at the time, really wanted. The creator of the original Game Boy and supposedly the color, Gunpei Yokoi, also just wasn't feeling the design after having his expectations very much tempered from the commercial failure of the Virtual Boy. Playing the retire as soon as 50 thanks to his decades-long time with the company, Yokoi was ready to leave the stage when the project began to take form. And although his name gets top billing for the creation of the Game Boy Pocket, released in July 21st, 1996, he soon retired from the company a couple months later. Why does he get the main credit for the Game Boy Color then, which we won't see for a couple more years? The story of the research grew thin, until I got digging a little bit deeper. With Yokoi's retirement in August of 1996, Nintendo was ready to pace from their handheld line and focus on their computer home console. With the newest console being churned out of the production line, the novel 3D welcoming Nintendo 64, the company Nintendo of Japan had been getting the most insistent letters and emails from concerned developers. With over 300 Game Boy games available to the world, and at least 100 more exclusive to Japan, Nintendo was quite pleased with its 7-year-old system, and the golden age it brought to the hands of gamers. Developers, however, have been less than pleased. While games have originally been made in simpler times with ease of the old hardware, game designers wanted more firepower to be able to utilize a broader type of experience. They were like, please, we need more power. This thing belongs in a museum. The OG designed by Sharp, sitting at an unimpressive 8 kilobytes of built-in RAM for the game and another 8 kilobytes for the LCD, was looking lackluster in the 1990s gaming world. Dropping in a low-end graphic calculator into the toaster would have probably had more firepower at this point. By comparison, it flaunted a single 4.19 megahertz core, whereas the original model of the Nintendo Switch sits at a 1.02 gigahertz per core, with a quad-core ARM chip rolling with each console. That's almost 1,000 times the clock speed alone, but I'm getting 20 years ahead of myself. Now, Nintendo, rolling a dough at this point, 
wasn't particularly fond of this idea, because despite the Game Boy being old as heck, it served them pretty darn well with next to no competitors in sight. On top of that, they were in the drawing board stage of Project Atlantis, which we know doesn't get that far and is instead converted into the layout design for the Game Boy Advance. In the public image, President Yamauchi was content with keeping the Game Boy as their handheld flagship after he watched several other companies flounder with successive iterations of handhelds. He knew that if the cost and the weight of the design didn't cross the threshold to make it into the same prerequisites of the original Game Boy, there was little chance that it was going to survive, let alone succeed. Their own Virtual Boy was proof of that. To journalists and media alike, the company was keen to proudly exclaim that the original Game Boy had life for a few more years. In a 2000s interview through Nintendo, however, known as the Iwata S series, Satoru Iwata, who was the president of Nintendo in 2002, very much by the community, and I adore him very much, rest in peace. Satoru Iwata talks with Sunikazu Ishihara, the head of the Blossom Pokemon Company, and Shigeki Morimoto, one of the game designers for Game Freak, and creator of the Pokemon Battle System. And he made Mew. In this interview, Iwata and Ishihara admit that they were worried about the release of Pokemon, which started to develop in 1990, and was going to miss the window of the original Game Boy. In this interview, when talking about the 1996 release of Pokemon Red and Green, which was you know, released as Red and Blue, North America, Australia, Europe, you know what I'm talking about, Iwata amuses, and I quote, What's more, at that time, there was this slight sense in the air that the Game Boy system might have reached the end of its shelf life, wasn't there? To which Ishihara responds, That's why I had this feeling that perhaps we were going to miss the last train. <laughs> After all, we drag it out to the very end of the system's lifespan. Iwata responds, Well, you did somehow manage to make it to that last train. And Iwata gives his trademark laugh, and the topic about the Game Boy's lifespan gets shelved forever. We, however, get to see it as writing on the wall for the coming of a new dawn some six years previous to this interview. So we know that developers were heckling Nintendo for something with more kick than the Game Boy, but Nintendo was both cautious and skeptical of taking another step forward. Despite this laissez-faire attitude, Nintendo eventually did say screw it, we love money, and decided to give things a go with a half-step. A Game Boy that would have almost 99% of its original design of registers, and equipped with a slightly more powerful chipset that would allow 16K kilobyte RAM, and equipped with a slightly more powerful chipset that would allow 16 kilobytes RAM for the display, and 32 kilobytes of RAM for the gameplay double and quadruple what the regular Game Boy had to offer, respectively. With most of the framework still being his design, this is probably why Yokoi was still credited for creating the color, despite the fact he was still well on his way to other projects, such as the Tamagotchi and the Wanderswan. Yes, Yokoi's new company took on a contract with Bandai and was the forerunner of the Game Boy's leading competitor, the drama. Back to the Game Boy Color, it was running at twice as fast with the CPU, and developers were thrilled with the dramatic increase in gaming capability. It had given up its gamma contrast slider as Nintendo was very confident on the screen handling the color brilliance, and the green was replaced with a gray-white background. The screen stayed the same as its predecessor, 
with a haughty resolution of 160 by 144 Hope you enjoy magnifying glasses. They also had an identical sound device ported from the OG Game Boy, presumably to save costs. This similarity allowed a smooth transition from the old guard to the new wave because, as you'll hear later, the Game Boy and Game Boy Color have a crap ton of backwards compatibility. It got so flamboyantly cross-platform friendly that Nintendo even tried to hush the topic just to prompt GBC sales later on. Our lads in Japan wanted to keep something else secret. It even had an infrared sensor that was incredibly underused. With the same technology of your standard TV's remote, it could send out an infrared beam, and although weak in comparison to your television control, it could send and receive basic information between each other. Some features included combining high score tables in Super Mario Bros. DX and Pokemon Pinball, and mystery gifts for Pokemon Gold and Silver, and mystery gifts from Pokemon Gold and Silver from other Game Boys, and even a Pikachu 2GS, which is a toy that acted kind of like a Gigapath for a Pikachu. Beyond that, no more than a dozen applications were ever used for infrared, no for games or devices in the US, and people mostly won't see it in action. Although I did have the Pikachu 2GS, I did enjoy that. I Pretty sure you could get like a Master Ball or something like that. Uh, kind of like uh, their wild lottery system that they had in the game series there. If I may humbly offer a consolation prize for the infrared sensor, however, may I present to you Mission Impossible. While the game itself is milquetoast at best, it did have several spy gadget features implemented as a side feature of the game. One of these, my friends, was the ability to program the Game Boy Color to be used as an actual authentic television remote. I kid you not. This average movie the game went out of their way to offer a conventional TV remote app so you could sleuth around as a child and mess with the television to annoy the snot out of siblings and parents alike. You could even turn on random stereos if you channeled the right signal. <laughs> It also allowed you to send super secret messages by linking two of the games via infrared and a calculator. You can see which one was the real breadwinner, though. Now, Nintendo's experimental gimmick for the handheld generation was smoothed into the bricks between. To complement this feature, the Game Boy Color had a game link cable that allowed players to physically connect their handhelds together for multiplayer-style games. It used the same connection as the Game Boy Pocket and the Game Boy Light, which are still remodels of the original Game Boy, with the latter coming only to Japan. Really, really wish that we had that in the US, the Game Boy Light. It was the first handheld in the Nintendo series that actually had backlit LCD screens. It was really sweet. What became immediately eye-popping for the consumers, however, was the vast array of color splash on the screen. Developers have been able to make use of oscillating the original Game Boy's four colors. Black, dark gray, light gray, and white over a green screen. But now they are able to make use of a 15-bit color palette, with the 16th being transparent. On top of that, developers were able to expand that color selection to over 32,000 different choices. Being able to handle up to 256 colors on the screen at any given moment, both developers and gamers alike were ecstatic at the visually appealing sights they were able to see. Help with the compatibility between the new and old system and allow the expanded colors, Nintendo split that 16 kHz of video RAM into two separate 8 kHz RAM banks. Bank 0, or the old guard section, would focus on the original four colors so that the original could put the game in and play it. Bank 1, or the expanded section, 
could be used in conjunction with Bank Zero to allow the Game Boy Color to give that rainbow display, without compromising the compatibility of the other handheld. This is why, and not many people know this, many games for the Game Boy Color could also be played on the original Game Boy as well. Nintendo went out of their way to encourage developers to allow as many games as possible to be playable on both handhelds, while still maintaining the guise that the game was still meant for their successor. It wasn't until much later that they had a catalog of games meant to be exclusive for the color, and we'll touch on the ambiguous confusion that followed the Western marketing for each one. To compensate for the virtual ton of colors that a game might demand, Nintendo used the tile system of 8x8 pixels for everything. And I mean everything. <laughs> Since there are only 64 pixels to be loaded into a square, and each square was typically limited to those 15 colors we're talking about, this method allowed developers to switch out palettes for each tile and make incredibly designed images. Once the tile was all shuffled together in a 20 by 18 formation on the layer, the simple puzzle forms into what you see on the screen. With this in mind, a lot of games for the color use scrolling and screen movement, which would demand a lot more graphic RAM. Now that the color is being added to the mix, right? Because of this, the game screen only showed a large portion of the actual game map that you would otherwise see in a modern-day equivalent of the handheld. This is because out of those 360 tiles being loaded at any given time, the Game Boy Color would have 1,024 tiles at the ready at any given moment, a huge increase from the 512 tiles that the original could hold in a single bank zero. Picture Seeing the screen in the Game Boy Color and knowing that there was additional graphics that made up nearly double the rest of what was really happening. Pretty cool, right? Like seeing a movie on the television, the color had a full cast and camera crew just sitting on the edge of the screen, making sure more and more things were happening and ready to go. Remember Donkey Kong Country for the Super Nintendo? Amazing design, CGI built sprites for the characters, fast paced movement for the levels, swanky music, remember all that? When Donkey Kong Country came out on the color in 2000, people were floored with how faithful to the original game it was. It was mostly thanks to the screen design. Because the actual in-game map screen was nearly three times the size, the buffering allowed what felt like incredible animation and movement at the time for that little handheld. To top it off, the Game Boy Color was running not one, not two, but three separate layers to handle each task of what you see. The first one, and shocker to anyone trying to guess, was the background, which handled all the static tiles and some light animation with the sprites anchored on the map. The second acted as the overlay, such as your hearts, your coin counters, timers, tax squares, you get the idea. This was also more typically static and focused more on the direct input of info that it could signal to the player any information they needed to get across. And finally, the object screen focused on the most animated sprites such as the character you control, monsters, and NPCs that fumble around on the map. By layering these on top of each other, you could push the color limit rule of each tile even further, because each layer was considered entirely separate for gaming purposes, and some developers took advantage of this to make art that would boggle the mind of players. Keep in mind that doing this on the original Game Boy was mostly moot, seeing that the four grayscale colors wouldn't really layer in a way that provided a unique color map. Like the original, the vertical line scanning ability, which you might know as a screen refresh, was allowed for special effects like rushing backgrounds and parallax. This again gets amplified by the fact that color is now able to be blended in, 
to the pixels being rapidly alternated to create a smooth, lightning-fast blaze of motion rushing by the player as they race through tracks or soaring through the sky to shoot down hostile spaceships. To add to this, and much of the credit of the game makers that took advantage of this, they could even take advantage of the scan lights shifting so fast that they could switch sprite colors mid-frame, triggering what we now know as high color mode. By going bananas with this technique, let's do the math together. We know that a single base tile can handle 15 colors, 16 if they forego the transparency color. They would implement typically four of these tiles for a sprite, opening up the 64 colors to be used for a single object. Sounds pretty rad, right? Now imagine the 144 vertical scan lines fit on a screen using the technique mentioned before for, say, the background layer. Those scan lines can natively handle a color palette of four colors each. We're looking at a maximum potential of 4,608 different colors that could be on a layer at any given moment. Developers with a lot of time on their hands could use this for advanced video moments, like limited CGI, momentary animations that exude hundreds of colors, and most importantly, some killer background layers that players could feel immersed walking through. While the Game Boy Color couldn't actually keep up with the buffering of all these colors at once for animation purposes, it still provided some games such as Donkey Kong Country a chance to give a competing look later on the console's lifespan. Now most people know about the link cables, but did you know there's a whole slew of accessories that came before the Game Boy Color? Some made sense, others, well, the 90s certainly was a wacky time, to say the least. Probably the runner-up to the most well-known hookup was the curly-whirly, battery-sucking nightlight, a little LED bulb that could power itself from the link port to shed a minuscule light over the Game Boy Color. This also worked for the pocket, as they shared the same input, and mostly because Nintendo decided that backlit screens just wasn't in the cards for a few more years. Now, I remember getting one of these as a child, and let me tell you, it was one of the first times I was actually disappointed in getting something for the color. The color, which displays a little red light that brightens and dims, depending on how much battery juice is left, would go into sudden death mode whenever I plugged this thing in. It was burning so much battery life that it felt sinful to use it, at the cost of losing time trying to get the eight gym badges in Pokemon. I still have memories of where it would be nearing sunset in my car ride home, desperately trying to gather flickers of light from the ending day in the streetlights. That sort of struggle may have been mind-numbing then, but that's a staple memory for me now. I can see where they were going with this, as it would have been nice to have it for a nightly car trip or going out camping, but no one in their right mind besides maybe a trust kid from Duracell would ever want to use this under normal circumstances. Now the Boombox Boy. Yes, you're it right. The Boombox Boy was a unique add-on that I never heard about until I began this research. It was a little chunk of plastic you'd plug into the link port and it would try to scan for radio stations and began playing the music it could find through its own audio jack while you play a game. You didn't really have any choice on which station it could pick, as it would just play the first thing it could find, and it did cover the volume knob, so it was a pain to adjust each time, but hey, you could pretend you were the cool kid when everybody else got Sony Walkmans. Another curveball special is the freaking sewing machine. Yes, you heard it. 
Nintendo worked with the Japanese sewing machine company Jaguar International Corporation in the spring of 2000 and built a compatible link where the Game Boy Color could be used as an interface to a crafting machine called the JN100. Over here in the US, the Singer Corporation made their own machine after licensing the JN100 and rebranded it as the Isaac 1500, selling at a whopping 799 US dollars. We're looking at $1,300 for this. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh. With some becoming a dying breed thanks to mass-produced materials dropping in price, Nintendo, Jaguar, and Singer all had one goal in mind with this boggling idea. With the Game Boy Color, a new wave of artisans will arrive with this new fad, with Nintendo being the shepherd. In Japan, the JN100 came with an instructional VHS tape, and if you don't know what a VHS tape is, I'm so sorry, I'm getting a little old. And it also came with a game cartridge, and that's it. Assume the household already had the Game Boy Color. The deluxe version also had a Game Boy Pocket. Weird. Over in the United States Singer Bungle, though, it came as a machine Game Boy Color package alongside the cartridge and the videotape. The whole thing didn't take off as much as Singer had hoped, as they were celebrating their 150th year by preparing for bankruptcy. But over 20 years later, there's been a bizarre resurgence of a new generation of folks discovering the feature and retaking the initiative in finding the sewing machine and making incredible designs with it. The dream may have not saved Singer from solvency, but the spirit of sewing with it continues to stitch on. While this one technically came out for both the color and the original Game Boy for reasons we already talked about, I can't help but mention the Game Boy Pocket Sonar, and the crazy concept of using your handheld to catch real live fish. Yes, the Game Boy Pocket Sonar. Tired of trying to get the bottle with your chief fishing hook in Link's Awakening? Say no more, fam. How about dropping some cash and buying a real life fish finding tool? It was in Japan only, but Bandai legitimately made a full-on fishing sonar device to slap on the back of your boat, and you'd hook it up to your Game Boy Color and, and give you water depth, movement, and potential catches to be had. I could not, for the life of me, find any verifiable cases of somebody actually catching a lunker with this, but I did spot some casual comments that they had used it, and it worked just like advertisement. So there's that. This next one's a bit of a doozy, because despite it doing so poorly in the commercial release in Japan, its implications would resurface back years later with the Nintendo DS, using the internet to provide multiplayer wirelessly. The Mobile System GB, released in 2001 and only in Japan, and it had a special adapter cord where one could link their Game Boy Color to their cell phone and link to an official server to play with other people across Japan. It was a joint effort between Nintendo and another company called Mobile 21, which was, surprise, surprise, partly owned by Nintendo and Konami. Cue the Pikachu surprise face, however, as they quickly realized that kids that would actually want to use this don't own cell phones. And parents would be darned if they're going to let their kids use their work phones and run up their bills. Only a couple notable games for the service was Pokemon Crystal and somehow Pokemon Stadium 2 for the Nintendo 64? It only sold 80,000 link cables, and the system shut down by the end of 2002. It's also worth mentioning that there are a few similar devices, such as the Hudson Soft's GB Kiss Link modem, which allowed people to get DLC from the internet and send messages to each other.
Now, remember when I was saying that the Game Boy Color seemed to be doing so dang well despite the fact that it wasn't really breaking anything like crazy in terms of the hardware or anything like that? I honestly think it was due to the advertising. With the Game Boy Color getting its debut in the late 90s, it would be no surprise that the advertising for it was completely bonkers. In magazines and toy store catalogs, Nintendo pushed hard into the fact that the color came in a vibrant hue of, well, color. In what is known as the Play It Loud series, you had the base colors of red, green, black, yellow, and a transparent purple kind of color. There was also a white one in Japan and a blue one in Europe. Ads would show paintbrushes with different strokes of different Game Boy colors, or show a stereotypical cliché teenager representing each color. Make sure to check that one out too, honestly. They did a lot of weird choices for that. Uh, the black Game Boy was uh, being represented by a cringe lord with shades, and yellow was sporting a toothy grin, sunflower cruise cut, and a bright-tinted sunglasses, and it's very worth the chuckle. A few more disturbing ads were one that was a wall of flesh with different colored tongues hanging out ugh, to show some Stephen King's beloved body horror. In a Spanish magazine, a person, completely shaved of hair and either painted red or edited the look as such, gives a duck face with dark blue lipstick, white thick brim sunglasses with something that looks like a mix between a white price tag and a tea bag hanging from the side, a leather jacket with a high-rise color, a forest green t-shirt, and most alarmingly, a large hand broom strapped to the top of his head, with a pixelated yellow background to boot. With the words, Pia Color, what translates to, Catch Color, it is by far the most bizarre ad for this handheld I could ever imagine trying to understand, with the context taken out. Probably the most famous in both printed and video ads were what we can refer to as the Get Into It series, with the slogan appearing to be the prize catchphrase for a Game Boy successor. With the green Game Boy Color often in the deadpan center of a completely blank white screen, characters from the advertised game would interact with it either as a stage or as a prop, before showing a few seconds of gameplay. You would then see black text boxes with the game's name, before seeing another quick video of the gameplay on the handheld. And then you get slapped in the face with a disembodied mouth flying at you shouting, Get into it! in a comically normal voice. Alrighty, it's a Mario's turn! Uh-oh, Game Boy fall off! Okie dokie, here we go! Mamma mia, that's some... Mario Golf on Game Boy Color. Get into it. This style was very odd, but also very textbook in nature. And the more I watched, the more I began to piece together the nature of these ads. The minimalist on-white design felt confusing, when it felt like they were always shouting about the colors in the magazine ads. Why were there always black box text screens for the game titles instead of a logo? And why were these voluptuous lips flapping out of sync? Seriously, it perturbed me more than it should that the voice that shouted, Get into it! was different. Every single time. It wasn't meant to be uniquely different, it just sounded like these ads were made at different points in time. And they must have forgot to save or find the audio clip with the first one and said, Oh well, time to find employee number 69 and ask him to shout the campaign slogan into this cheap recorder. Over a dozen separate times. The black text boxes appeared to be the equivalent of video editing duct tape. Was 
the Japanese original text underneath? It was at the very least a simple and easy way to make the localization modular, as they would swap out the languages to the Spanish versions of the same ad. Localization also explained why the loops were a little bit funky. It was meant to host multiple languages, so perhaps it was trying to provide leadway for the other enunciations. Pondering on whether or not this was just the Americanized version of the ads shown in Japan, a few seconds of research had given me great confidence that I was sorely mistaken. If you thought 1990s American and European ads for the handheld were wild, then holy moly are you in for a treat. The first one I encountered was of Japanese teenagers gaining animated jaw drops to their shoulders at the look of Link's Awakening DX. Another was of Wario suffering PTSD by being crushed, emulated and turned into a vampire for Wario Land 3. Konami decides to surprise no one by throwing Japanese women in scant bikinis and other fashions while doing lackluster dances for Good Luck Goman. A short video of a balding, middle-aged businessman who kinda looked like Giovanni from Team Rocket is seen leaning behind a pole idolizing a boy playing a copy of Pokemon Crystal and encountering Suicune. All the while bathed in a ray of sunlight as the man begins to contemplate the teenager's demise. This middle-aged man archetype appears in many more of these advertising shorts. The list goes on and on, and to be frank, well, I'm Tyler, but nonetheless, I'm very jealous that Japan has got all these cool ads when all we got was this low-cost garbage with a floating mouth giving a catchphrase. A catchphrase that was probably made by some C-tier advertising company that thought kids were dumb and parents would feel compelled to buy us pocket cartoon devices. It appears that while over here in the States the focus was entirely on the younger generation, in Japan it was probably more believed that all ages, mostly male, were a giant target audience that would jump at a handheld. That could, forgive the pun, add some color to the doldrums of everyday life. I would like to point out at this moment that uh, even though it seemed like the advertising was targeted at male, I believe it was showing somewhere around 47% of people that played the Game Boy series was actually female. One of the largest uh, representations of uh, diversity with the gender at the time. We did get a couple of prize winners at least over on the American side, such as the one that you heard in the beginning of the episode. Showing a boy with a nested goose that could lay gold and silver eggs, he begins to hold up pictures of Pokemon from the second generation as the father in a lab coat, sleeping gown, walks off. The goose is clearly distressed to the point that I'm willing to bat PETA had a field day with this one, and eventually it lays a limited edition Pokemon Gold and Silver Game Boy Color. The look on this goose as the kid asks for five more leaves me in shambles uh, is so funny. And I encourage anyone to watch the video if they get the chance. Just YouTube search Game Boy Color ad goose. The goose isn't real, by the way. Please don't at me. So as I said before in this episode, there was an interesting bit of miscommunication on what was considered an original Game Boy game meant to be played on the Game Boy. 
And then there was an original Game Boy, but it could be played on the Game Boy Color with a slightly enhanced color palette. What was meant to be a Game Boy Color game, but it could be played on the original Game Boy. And what was meant to be a Game Boy Color game that could only be played on the Game Boy Color. Quick, say that three times fast. Because there was so much compatibility available thanks to the shared registers on the console, one big indicator was used to show which of the three categories the game was in. Now mind you, there was four different things said earlier in my mystical Sphinx riddle. The first was the cartridge color because, well, why not? The original Game Boy games were typically in a monotone gray cartridge, with Shreks. Obviously there are some exceptions like the Pokemon games, but that's marketing for you. Next was the enhanced OG Game Boy games that had a bunch of color choices baked into them so it kinda looked like a Game Boy Color game when you popped it in one. And those cartridges were black, with colorful Game Mart stickered on. Next was the clear cartridges. Games that were marketed directly for the Game Boy Color because they are too powerful and vivid for that dusty old doorstop. The thing was, the line between what was marketed for Game Boy and for the Game Boy Color was often blurred because the truth was, the first year or two was no man's land on what could be played on what. Packaging that showed games in full blast color were perfectly playable on the old handheld without any issues. Pokemon Gold and Silver, for example. Almost everyone I knew believed it was for the color exclusively, but in fact, many people played it on their original Game Boys and Game Boy Pockets because it simply could. It wasn't until near the 2000s that Nintendo had to begin putting the firm disclaimer, ONLY FOR THE GAME BOY COLOR, in tiny font on the corner in the back of the packaging. Only then did folks still stock a generation behind realize that they couldn't ride a pocket all the way to the Game Boy Advance. It was Pokemon Crystal that began the Iron Wall to advance a new age where people had to step up their game. Boy. Or fall behind in the times. So it seems anyhow. There are a total of 915 games licensed through Nintendo and advertised for the Game Boy Color. The actual number of games that was exclusively permitted is reported variably. Mostly in part that the people creating the list aren't able to fact check each and every game listed as an exclusive by popping into a Game Boy or Game Boy Pocket. When the exclusivity check passes and a color exclusive game was popped into an OG Game Boy, you often will see a custom made screen scolding you for sinning against the corporate gods and find a color post haste. The best and factually compiled list I could find is, and this is ironic for an amateur researcher, Wikipedia, which shows 114 games to be both advertised for the Game Boy Color and can only be played on it, specifically. That brings us to a approximate 12.5% exclusivity rate for all Game Boy Color games versus what is shown on the box. That means that 7 out of 8 games marketed for the Game Boy Color were also Game Boy and Game Boy Pocket friendly. That isn't to say that they could play it perfectly, far from it, I'm sure. But the idea that such a tiny fraction would require the color in their games is weird. Now we know that Nintendo has been a staunch defender of holding on to the older player base as we'll see with other video game companies such as Sony and Microsoft, but Nintendo certainly gets the top billing for such an act. The Game Boy Advance was able to play the last 15 years worth of Nintendo games as the torch gets passed on to the next generation, and the Nintendo DS was inadvertently able to play Game Boy Advance games. As digital sales of older titles begin to turn a new market of nostalgia, however, we'll begin to see this ramping down for the company as they begin to market older games as touchstone classics to be hand-bought through their eShop, rather than providing the hardware to ladder over to their previous system. The trend ended with the Nintendo Switch, as you could not play Wii U titles via the game disc, and thus the age of being one console behind turned into digital rebranding and marketing. 
yeah, like two Timmy tacos and a couple don't of even mini. Think about it, pal. Uh, okay. Uh, if you don't You're have. You're not getting anything from me, Mister. Can I speak to your manager, please? Listen, cheapy, cheap, cheapy. Hit the road, or it's gonna get ugly. Kiss your toadstool goodbye, loser. <laughs> With games like Super Mario Bros. now in color, you might actually forget where you are. Oh, who goes there? Game Boy Color. Get into it. The true sales numbers of the Game Boy Color are actually hidden by Nintendo. Instead, opting for a combined total of the Game Boy and Game Boy Color to be at 118 million by the time it was discontinued on March 23, 2003. However, and this is thanks to a Redditor by the name of Bandit2, we can estimate loosely based off of fiscal years that of that 118 million, approximately 54 million of those were Game Boy Colors. This is in retrospect of trickling sales of the original Game Boy, Game Boy Pockets, and the Game Boy Lite sold in Japan. Using the combined total is considered the second best-selling handheld of all time, with the gold medal going to the Nintendo DS. The only other console to beat it is the PlayStation 2, making it the third best-selling game console in the world. Some of the top-selling games include Pokemon Gold, Silver, and Crystal, Pokemon Pinball, Zelda Oracle of Seasons and Ages, Pokemon Trading Card Game, some Yu-Gi-Oh! titles, Dragon Warrior Monsters, Link's Awakening DX, and Wario Land 3. Now that it's been in the dust for almost 20 years with only a few select titles being revitalized for a newer platform, it's no surprise that emulators have sprung up for it since the 90s. Platforms that can hold a homebrew monitor caked in include Android and iPhone games, PC, Linux, Macs, Unix servers, Internet Explorer, the Dragon Box Pyra, Gizmundo, TI and Casio graphing calculators, the Apple Watch, a LeapFrog children educational toy, the DS and 3DS, Wii, PSP, Vita, Switch, the Dreamcast, Wii U, PlayStation 1 through 4, and many freaking more. The Game Boy Color can be emulated on whatever can hold it, like the equivalent of a Can It Run Doom Challenge. Which is to say, if it has the equivalent of a watered-down Raspberry Pi, chances are there's a Game Boy Color emulator waiting to be put on it. On top of that, there's literally hundreds of hardware from crowdfunded garage projects to Alibaba that are more than happy to sell, although not so legally, cheaply made handhelds that can house more game titles that you'd possibly want. If you wanted my personal recommendation, check out the RetroStone 2. It comes with an HDMI output, backlit screen, micro SD card support, and USB slots. It even has an Ethernet port for some godforsaken reason, but it's by far the best unofficial handheld I've ever owned, and it has emulators for several different consoles besides the color, and super worth the price and effort to get it running. That, my friends, is gonna do it for the episode of the Game Boy Color, a quick running chapter in Nintendo's handheld history that did more than they ever planned for, give them newfound confidence in the Game Boy Advance a couple years later. In the beginning of this episode, I mentioned the demise of my Game Boy Color. Today, you can get Game Boy Colors relatively cheap and you can buy shelves, the plastic case of the handheld, for a reasonable price over on Amazon. I was able to buy a ghetto Game Boy Color and reshell it into the original Pokemon case I had all those years ago, and now I have the handheld safely in my home. Take that, childhood trauma! My sources for this episode include scripts from an Iwata Ass interview, YouTube composite videos by Ali Awesome, Kelly Lewin, Scott the Waz, and Modern Ventured Gamer, who all did an amazing job on their own reports and sources. 
Bulbapedia over the accessories, several now-defunct magazines that hosted the paper ads, Games Radar for the Get Into It ads footage, 83 Chris Aaron for putting all the Japanese ads together, Bandit 2 for the sales math, and the Japanese Nintendo website for verification on the hardware numbers, and of course, Wikipedia. You can find me on Twitter at 2 times taller, all letters, one word. There is a fledgling Twitter page called at Arcade Report, but I don't know if the popularity of the reports will be enough to warrant that. I'll figure that one out later. I hope you enjoyed the first episode, and I can't wait to share with you more deep dives into the arcades of gaming history. But until then, don't forget your fresh batteries and check out that stupid goose head, guys. I'll see you later. <laughs>